Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Due to the unprecedented times we're living in, courtesy COVID-19, we are recording our conversations remotely. So you might notice a difference in audio quality. What remains the same, however, is getting to know yet another accomplished, passionate, creative woman. And boy, does Sarah Gould have that in spades. She's a feminist, leader, activist, and philanthropist. To lift a line from the Broadway hit Hamilton, Sarah was in the room where it happened. She's a past president and CEO of the Miss Foundation for Women. She came on board in 1986 as founding director of its economic development program. She served as president and CEO from 2004 to 2010. An expert in social justice philanthropy and organizational growth, change, and effectiveness, Sarah is the chair of the board of the directors of the National Immigration Law Center. She's also a member of its Immigrant Justice Fund, the Proteus Fund, and the Proteus Action League. Currently, Sarah is the co-founder and co-director of the Steinem Initiative at Smith College, a pilot program that focuses on using women's and gender history as an organizing tool to empower current social justice movements. She's also a member of the advisory board of JOLT, which is a multi-issue organization based in Texas that works to increase the political power and influence of Latinos in this country. So let's meet and get to know this powerhouse. Sarah, welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Well, thank you so much, Sandy. I'm delighted to be here. Have you always been an activist? And what I mean by that is, growing up, did you get that from your parents? Did you pick that up on your own? Talk about it. Yeah. So I think in one way or another, I have always been an activist. I am from a family of six children, um, and I'm the fourth child of six, but I'm the first girl. I have three older brothers and two younger sisters. I grew up in uh, the 50s and 60s. I was born in 1951 in the Midwest in a very small town called Grand Haven, Michigan, on, on Lake Michigan. And my Mom came from a family in Grand Haven that was a upper middle class family of wealth that owned a company in Grand Haven. My dad came from Flint, Michigan, and his father worked on the assembly line at Chevrolet. So uh, two very different class backgrounds in my background. And my activism started really around around gender, not surprisingly, being a, a, a girl, the oldest girl in a family with three boys and three girls, all born within nine years. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I could, from a very young age, tell, you know, what was... Um, what was denied in a sense to me because I was only because I was a girl and what was different between girls and boys only because of their gender. In my family, there is a business, a uh, family business in Michigan and passed down father to son, father to son, but in my mother's family. And um, in her generation, her brother, her only brother was killed in World War II. So it was my dad who married my mom, who went into leadership in the company. And then, of course, there were my three older brothers, and they were set to go into leadership in the company. 
And it was clear to me that that was really happening because they were the boys, you know, the girls in the family were just as interested in Challenge, uh, which is the name of the company, many of us, many of the girls, but we were not really considered, even though we were very well loved and very well taken care of in our family, it was clear to me the difference in opportunities. So my, I like to say that I became a women's rights activist at a very young age because I was in a sense activating on my own behalf to be a presence in this family, even though I was a girl. Also in this small town, very white. So I became aware of issues around race as I grew up and saw that there was just one person of color, an African-American man in my high school, and very tuned into issues around class because we were from uh, the wealthier side of town. So as I grew, my frame really began to change from one of kind of fairness. You know, what I felt was fair and unfair has evolved into something that is about, uh, very solidly about justice. You know, what is just and unjust in our world. And I think I've always had a keen uh, eye for that and a keen meter inside myself about my own experience, but very much about others' experiences. I've always been a learner. And I think another part of where my activism comes from is that I've had really wonderful examples in my life of people who have taken leadership. Certainly my parents, my grandparents, and this little town I grew up in, Grand Haven, Michigan, which I love very much, it's a town where there was a lot of civic leadership. My first fundraising gig was when I think I was 11 years old, and I raised money for the Grand Haven Musical Fountain, which (laughs) was the brainchild of our mayor at the time, uh, Bill Creason who had seen this sort of a fountain in Europe, I think, when he was stationed there in the war. And he came back to Grand Haven with his vision that at the end of the main street in Grand Haven, you are running into the Grand River. And if you follow the river to the west, you're going to come very soon to Lake Michigan. So he envisioned this fountain on the hill and he built it. And I, he was also our dentist. <laughs> and so I, I love Dr. Creason. And I decided that I shared his vision. You know, even at age 11, I shared his vision of this fountain. And I went door to door in Grand Haven and got my picture on the front page of the Grand Haven Tribune, giving him, you know, about $13.10 or something. <laughs> what a windfall, Sarah. <laughs> well, that's interesting because. All right, so you this was kind of formed for you at home in spite of the fact that, I'll use this term, you were passed over in terms of the family business. But what was it like going to school? Did you feel, and I'm using this term in quotes, marginalized because of your gender? No, I don't think I did. You know, gender roles were fairly intact at that point. And no, I think I felt recognized. I think in our, uh, you know, it was a great public school system. I was a high achiever. I've always been a high achiever. So I got a lot of recognition and attention from teachers. You know, I was following in the footsteps of my three brothers, and that was always a good thing. They were very talented also, and, you know, each unique in their own way. So at school, and I've always had strong friendships with other women at that point, girls, of course, and that has always meant a great deal to me. Uh, Another aspect of my family where I saw leadership actually is um, 
my mother was uh, an alcoholic. And in this small town, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, she was a drinking alcoholic for about five years. And our family dynamic was, of course, hugely influenced by this. There was, there was, I think, all of us who grew up in our family, you know, suffered some amount of trauma. And, um, but my mother, she sobered up after being a drinking alcoholic for five years. She finally did find help through um, Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, that was a pivotal moment. I was about 13 or 14. And I saw my mother uh, decide that she was going to change her life. And it was not easy after that. You know, there were many struggles. And she was a woman alcoholic in a small town in the early, this was probably 63 or 64. But she did it. And um, and I also saw the power of networks. I, I'm sure that I saw she was a very active uh, participant in AA. My dad was an active participant in, in Al-Anon. And she had a sponsor. We became very close. Uh, his name was Leonard Lamb. We became very close to Leonard and his family. I know that as a young person, that also influenced my thinking about, you know, that you can... Um, overcome difficulty, you can be resilient. And, uh, and you usually do that by depending on, on networks and by building your own networks and building your own support systems. But how did that impact you as a, as a preteen or teenager? It must have been very confusing on some level, because as you said in the beginning of our conversation, that there was a lot of love in your family. And I'm not saying that that would negate it, but that would have to impact slash alter that, right? Was it not confusing for you? Yes, it absolutely was confusing for me. And, you know, I found my anchors, if you will. I've always been a person who, uh, and I'm sure it comes out of this experience, I became a person who reached out for help. And so my best friend, Ellen Fossheim, her parents, um, her dad had grown up in Grand Haven with my mother uh, and they'd gone to high school together. They knew, you know, almost every family I'm sure knew that the Goulds were what, what was happening in the Gould household um, in terms of my mother's illness. And so the Fossheims became an anchor for me. Also, I'm, I'm a dancer. I started dancing when I was three, um, taking lessons at um, Eloise Boven Starlet School of Dance, and dancing became a real anchor for me. And going to dancing school and beginning to teach um, uh, little girls when I when they were five and I was I was a teenager, so it was very confusing. And I worked to find those places that grounded me, you know, in, in addition to school, as you've already brought up. My family was Presbyterian. I think I participated in things through church. That, that, that was anchor. And my grandmother, my maternal grandparents lived, you know, we lived in the same town. They did. They, they were, this was the line of the Challenge Machinery Company. And, um, they were an enormous influence in our lives and, uh, and I think helped to sort out the confusion. And my, uh, other grandparents in Flint, my, the Gould grandparents, we would go every summer in twos, pairs. Uh, my, my six siblings, would. I was always paired with my brother, John, the next oldest, and we would go to spend time with our, our uh, Gould grandparents. So while it was confusing, there were enough, you know, in a small town, there were enough places to, and people with whom to figure that I was safe and and to create that kind of safety and that kind of um, help in sorting things out. What was happening? You know, what what was alcoholism? What was um, what was happening in our family? Right, as opposed to being shamed uh, and yeah. humiliated by it because of the small town ethos. Yes, you know? yes, 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, there were always helpers around. Um, you know, this uh, just I'll tell you one more aspect of my family, because I do talk about this a lot. And it uh, was obviously very influential. My mother later in her life, um, when I was 30 years old, my mother, after she uh, overcame her alcoholism, she also suffered from manic depression. And she took her own life in um, 1981, many, wow. many years ago now. Wow. Uh, and I was 30. My sisters were younger. My brothers were a little bit older. And it was, again, people in this town of Grand Haven who helped us make sense out of that. And my mother's minister at that time in the Presbyterian Church, he immediately declared that uh, it was right at Thanksgiving. And he immediately declared that we were going to give thanks for her life. And so, you know, I, I thought of that when you talked about the shame or stigma. He was pivotal in moving all of us in the town and in our family to a place not of stigma about what had happened with my mom, but, uh, but to a place of celebration of her life, even though she was only 63 years old. And it was through that experience that we all learned even more about networks, about um, the P and relationships and the importance of relationship in moving you through life, because we uh, were reacquainted with at that time, many, many people who we had known in our childhood who were in AA or not in AA, but who um, had come into contact with my mom, had had the experience of my mother offering them various kindnesses over the years. And it was just a very, very profound experience. Well, I could see how it could really impact you. So where did you go to college and what did you see for yourself in your professional future? I went to college uh, to um, Alma College, which is a small Presbyterian college in the middle of Michigan. And my brothers, uh, my three brothers had all also gone to Alma. So a little story here is that when I was a high school senior and I was thinking about college, I went to the Grand Haven Public Library and I went into the stacks and I looked at all the college brochures and I fell in love with Middlebury College um, in Vermont. And I thought, you know, I really would love to go to Middlebury. So I ended up applying and I got into Middlebury. I got into Alma. Those were the only two places I applied. I went to Alma because I think in hindsight, because no one in my family really encouraged me to take a leap at that point and go to, um, go to Middlebury. So at Alma, a big turning point in my life happened. Uh, and that was that I got married when I was 20 years old. And the reason for that really, in hindsight, with all the reflection I've done, is I realized I needed a way to distance myself from my family without leaving them. You mean to like expand your world in a sense? To expand my world, to get myself into a safer place, you know, and a, a place where I really felt that I could remain a part of my original family, but I was beginning to branch out. And for me at that moment in Michigan, in 1971, uh, I, I got married. I married someone that I had known for three months. Oh, and, my God. Yeah. From school? Uh, from, from Alma, yep. And he was very socially acceptable uh, to my family. And uh, <laughs> although they, of course, encouraged, uh, both families encouraged us not to marry, but, uh, but of course, we thought we knew what we were doing and we did marry. And that changed our life because we could no longer afford to go to Alma. And so we transferred to Grand Valley State uh, College at that time, now university. And that's where we finished. But that was a very big turning point, as you can imagine, when I, when I went to college. And I, at that point, saw myself mainly as a, as a, um, 
as a wife, um, although I was still a very high achiever, et cetera. So I wasn't quite sure, but my husband was sure that he was going to go to law school and he got into law school at Syracuse, New York, which is how I ended up moving east in 1973 and out of the state of Michigan. And when I went for job interviews in Syracuse, I interviewed in two places. One was a hardware store, to be a clerk <laughs> in a hardware store. And the other was um, at Syracuse University, the, the student union um, at Syracuse, which was at that point a good food store, a, an alternative video studio, and an alternative photography studio. So I took that job. I went to work at Syracuse University. I was 22 years old and I was in the student union. And I was coming across, of course, all kinds of students who were coming from everywhere who had very different life experiences than I had had growing up. And, um, you know, they were living in communal houses. They were smoking dope. They were all sleeping together. I was like, oh my God, I had no idea this even existed in the world. Did you feel like you stepped into it? <laughs> yeah. It? Yeah. I felt like, whoa. And um, and long story short, uh, two and a half years later, my marriage did end, and I I made that decision. It was a very difficult decision, because I loved my husband, but I also became very aware I was finding my own self, and I realized I was still very young, and I had made a mistake in marrying so young. So we were divorced, and then I did begin to see that was that was the. That was the bursting forth of what is it I want to do with my life. And I decided to go to graduate school in city and regional planning. And I got into Harvard University and I moved at that time from Syracuse to, to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now it's 1975. It's the middle of the women's movement. And yes, I yes, 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 yes. And here I am. And, uh, you know, there's the women's school for, to learn about feminism. And there's all the, there's just everything. And I loved that period of time when I lived in Cambridge. Uh, I did have a, a boyfriend back in Syracuse. So I commuted back and forth some. But um, I really joined up at school and I became very involved in feminist organizations, a couple of feminist organizations that, you know, this is the 70s. They were just burgeoning in, in Cambridge. And one was the women's school. That was very exciting. I taught, I began to teach other women. I taught a class with a, a good friend called um, Growing Up Female. And it was, you know, through that class also that I began to examine more about what my experience was growing up female and hearing more about many other women's experiences. So I ended up um, getting a master's degree in city and regional planning. I moved back to Syracuse, New York for a time and worked for the city of Syracuse. Then I came back to Massachusetts and I worked for the state of Massachusetts in job creation programs. I was very, very interested in job creation and particularly uh, working with community development corporations, which were just being started all across the state of Massachusetts at that time. There were a few federal CDCs that were large federally funded CDCs, but but Massachusetts was a state in which, really, I think it may have been the leading state in which the state itself tried to create a network of CDCs in, in communities across Massachusetts. So I went to work in that field and traveled across Massachusetts, you know, meeting these local people who the CDCs themselves were sometimes led by men, sometimes by women. And many of the people they were trying to benefit and many of the members of the CDC were women low-income women, women raising families, et cetera. So all, all of a sudden I could see how my life's work could bring together 
my feminism, which started way back in my family, which had grown and evolved through uh, in many ways, it could come together with my huge interest in how do we move um, people who have less, how do we move them forward? And how do we reach out to the margins of society in order to bring the margins closer to the center? Because if you can make policy and make practice that works for people on the margins, you're going to benefit everybody. So I then developed, there was a little group, you know, now we're, we're, where are we? We're in the late seventies, very early eighties. And there was a group of women who were active in community development. And uh, we were all over the country. We, we began to communicate a little bit. All of a sudden, I then decided, well, so it's the early 80s. And in 1981, my mother died. That was when she died. And that was a profound moment for me. It was a profound moment of rethinking what, what is happening here? What am I doing? What do I want to change in my life? And, um, and I decided to go back to school um, and become a therapist uh, and learn much more about organizational development and how organizations work. So I applied to go back to Harvard to another program in the education school. And meanwhile, I got contacted by an organization in New York City, the Women's Action Alliance. And they had heard about me through these networks of women working in community development. Uh, They knew I was interested in that. And they had just gotten money from the Levi Strauss Foundation to start a program on women's economic development at the Women's Action Alliance, a national program. And they got in touch and said, you want to apply for this? It's six months of funding. And I was uh, waiting to hear from Harvard. And I thought to myself, well, sure, it's January. I'm going to go back to school in September. I'll go down. If I get this, if I can get this, I'll go do this for six months. It'll be an adventure. So in 1983, I got the job, January of 83, and I moved to New York City. And uh, where I have been ever since, I never went back to school uh, because this job at the Women's Action Alliance was so, uh, just was a national platform. It took me right into women's organizations all over the country that were doing work to uh, improve the economic condition of women and their families. And the Women's Action Alliance was in the same building, 370 Lexington Avenue, as was the Ms. Foundation for Women, which was at that point a very small organization. I got in the elevator, I went to the Ms. Foundation, and I realized that that was an even more interesting place where they were giving money and being in relationship to women's grassroots organizations of all kinds in urban and rural areas all over the United States. With what little money they had, they were doing that. And I thought to myself, that's where I want to work. Well, then I did the Women's Action Alliance work for a year and a half. I also worked for what was then called the Corporation for Enterprise Development. It's now called Opportunity Now. So I go, um, I go to the Corporation for Enterprise Development in 84. In 1986, I'm sitting at my desk working for um, what is called the Hub Program for Women's Enterprise. And I get a phone call from a woman named Marie Wilson. And Marie says, I'm the new executive director of the Ms. Foundation for Women. And I have heard about you, and I want to start an economic development program, and I'd like to talk to you. So I'm on the other end of this phone call thinking to myself, I can't believe this. This is the Ms. Foundation where I really want to work. And so I met with Marie, and she was a force of nature, still is a human dynamo. And uh, within a few months, I had left uh, the Corporation for Enterprise Development and gone to the Ms. Foundation. And you were basically there... In its infancy? Yeah. 
Well, it's tw- it's 20 year old infancy. Yeah. It had been founded in 1972 and this was now 1986. So 14 years it had been around, but it had always been small and it had been doing great things, but it was small. So Marie came to the foundation and she had a very, very big vision. And it was also the right moment in philanthropy. It was the late 80s leading into the early 90s. There was so much money in philanthropy because of what was happening in the stock market. And Marie kind of took philanthropy uh, in New York City, national philanthropy by storm as the new leader of the foundation. And she started to raise money hand over fist. So I really was there as one of her right-hand people as the foundation grew. To do what with the money? What we were doing, uh, she, of course, was raising money for the foundation overall. And that money was given to grassroots women's organizations all over the country uh, that were building movement among women that were working in the um, issue areas, if you will, of economic justice, um, reproductive rights, as it was called then, reproductive rights and health, now reproductive justice, health and safety, women's, you know, shelters at that time, there, you know, that movement had not quite made the pivot to thinking we can't, don't just shelter women, we have to actually do advocacy to change and end violence against women. So Ms. was very in tune at that time with all of the organizations across the country. Now, we weren't able to fund all of them, but we were, we were a resource, a financial resource to many of them, and we were a technical assistance and um, kind of a movement-building resource to, to dozens and hundreds of other organizations. Then in my field particularly, we started what was called um, the Economic Development Program, and that uh, was aimed at helping those organizations around the country that were uh, working on women's economic status, particularly low-income women and women of color. And so what we started out with very little money in the beginning, we decided to do regional meetings around uh, the country that would bring women's organizations together that were thinking about economic development, which was a big word at this time. You know, this is 1986, 87, 88. Economic development out there in every city and county uh, and state in the country is being talked about. But it never has a gender lens. It barely has a race or class lens. It's just about economic growth, right? And so my contention was we've got to put a different definition to economic development. We've got to bring this gender, race, and class lens to economic development. And uh, we got to start by talking to these organizations themselves who are in community, who are seeing all this economic development happening, but they're being left out of it. So we held our first regional meeting in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. This was probably 1987, uh, possibly even 86, the fall of 86. We brought together, I would say, about 50 women's organizations in that region, women's shelters, uh, women's commissions, women's job training programs, organizations like that. And we used a really frarian, if you will, Paula Frary from Latin America. We used a very frarian approach, meaning that we knew that these women, I felt these women, they're on the ground in community. They know it needs to be done, but let's ask them questions to draw out what they think. And so we pose questions, you know, what do you think economic development is? Who do you think benefits from it? What's going on in your community? What do you think should go on? And in this process, in the, in these, um, 
two or three day meetings that included overnights. We were in, you know, conference centers or hotels. These women really formed network and they, they could answer those questions. They knew what was missing in the economic development approaches that their communities were, were pursuing. And we built their confidence. We did 13 of these regional meetings in about a two and a half year period. And in the beginning, I was like the expert in this field. But at the end of this year and a half or two years, our effort had brought to light and raised up dozens of leaders across the country of women, women of color and white women, who were really the leaders. And they were the experts. And they began to have much more confidence and to um, know that they were not alone was a sort of a consciousness raising, you know, they saw that they were in fact not alone in their, not only not alone in their community, but there was a whole group of women who were growing across the United States who were becoming a field, if you will, in a professional sense, and they were becoming a movement. And so by 88, we actually started a national institute called the Institute on Women and Economic Development. And uh, we did it in conjunction with Tufts University at that time. And we brought together 88 women in the summer of 1988 in Boston Harbor on an island for a weekend. And that was really the beginning of a national field building and movement building effort around what started out being called economic development and evolved over time to be really at its core about economic justice. How do you lift up the leadership of women at the margins? How do you bring enough support and how do you learn from them, because it's always been the belief of the Ms. Foundation for Women and my personal belief that the people experiencing the problems and issues in our world are the people who have the answers, but we have to support them to bring those answers forward. Right. How integral was Gloria Stein at this point, and how, how much focus did you want to place or effort did you want to put on getting women into positions of power as in government? When I came to the Ms. Foundation, she was on the board of the foundation still, as were the other founding mothers. And she loved this work. I called it economic development. Gloria called it economic empowerment. She really didn't like that word, economic development. And she was very helpful in all in the regional meetings. Uh, I don't know that she ever came to one, but she was very supportive of the context for them. But, but the first institute in 1988, Gloria was there for that whole weekend. She brought with her another... I think Wilma Mankiller was on the board of Ms. at that time, ah, although she, mm-hmm, she may not mm-hmm. have been, but Gloria brought her mm-hmm. to that first institute. And I had visited Wilma. I had done a lot of traveling from, from 86 for at least a decade or 15 years. I traveled a good 60 to 70% of my time at Ms. I went into these communities, worked with organizations. I had, I had gone to visit Wilma. So Wilma and Gloria were at that first institute, and that was incredibly powerful. One of the plenaries was Wilma talking about the experience of women on Native American reservations. And that was profound because most of the women at the Institute, there were Native women there. There were probably five or six Native women out of 88. But the other women who weren't Native had almost no idea about Native reservations and the life on reservations. So Wilma really created a window in by in this plenary, speaking about her own experience. And then she invited the five or six women who were there from other reservations. She invited them on the stage and they shared their experience. And in that room, you could have heard a pin drop because everyone was riveted. And it became a, a an aspect of the Institute that we would try always while we were together to examine something in our 
in our lives that we were not as familiar with. The, the second year, which was 89, we were in New Hampshire and it was the time of Tiananmen Square. And, and we, were talking about, uh, we were talking about immigration. We were talking about migration. But Gloria was very involved and very much a supporter of uh, all of this economic justice work and all of the work of the Ms. Foundation. What was the other thing you asked? Politics, getting women in. Uh, yeah, that was not in the original mission of the Ms. Foundation. And it was not really an interest of mine. I very much an interest in women in leadership positions. But for me, it was in communities, in organizations, and not... Not, not in the elected sphere. But you bring up a very interesting question because um, by the late 90s, in, into the 2000s, Marie Wilson had started another organization called the White House Project, and she was executive director or president of that. That was solely focused not on getting women into political leadership, but it was focused on women's leadership at the highest levels um, up to and including the White House. And so Marie had a very deep and passionate interest in those spheres and arenas of leadership for women. She had a very, and still does, had very passionate interest in, in women in elected positions. In keeping with the women theme, you started this very interesting program at Smith College, this Steinem Initiative. What prompted that? There is a women's history archive at Smith College. Which is an all-women school for those who don't know. Right. And a very old school. Been around for a very long time. And they have an archive that I believe I'm right in saying started in the 20s. It's a women's history archive. It's one of the two largest in the United States. It's very comparable in size to the Schlesinger Library at uh, Harvard. And it developed uh, an interest in archiving the papers and records and doing oral histories with women activist leaders. Now, you know, or you may not know, Gloria is a graduate of Smith College and uh, in 1956. So they have a close relationship, Smith and Gloria. And she always had a relationship with the women who led um, the archives. And one of those women, or two of those women, Cheryl Redman and Joyce Follet, they got a lot of money from the Ford Foundation to do something called the Voices of Feminism Project. And that was happening in the, I think I'm right in saying, must have been the uh, 2000s, because in that period of time, they came to me. I was then the president of the foundation. So it's between 2004 and 2010. They came to me and said, we would like to collect the papers of the Ms. Foundation and bring them under this Voices of Feminism project, bring them to Smith College. And we'd like to do some oral history with you, Sarah, as the president of Ms. So we said, yes, of course, you may have our papers. We would love our papers to be at Smith. Gloria's papers are there. The Ms. Magazine papers are there. It only made sense. And I went up to do oral history. And I really, that was the beginning of the window in my mind into uh, of what value is history in our current work. Well, then a couple of years later, Joyce and Cheryl came to me again. At, 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 this is probably 20... 11 or so. I am at this point now in a fellowship. I'm sitting at the Foundation Center, what's now called Candid, in New York City on a fellowship that's being supported by the Atlantic Philanthropies. They came and they took me out to lunch and they said, we've got this vision for our archive, for the Sophia Smith Collection, that it should not just be a, a repository of these papers and records and interviews that are coming in through the Voices of Feminism Project. We have a vision for an activist archive. 
an archive that turns material back to the communities from which it came and to many other communities, an archive that is a resource to activists and women on the ground, not only a resource to scholars and, and, and researchers. And so they, they shared this vision with me and they wanted to raise money to try to make this a reality. And, you know, I've been a very good fundraiser all my life and I thought I could help them. And so I decided a couple of years later, I went back to them and said, I'm ready. Uh, Let's try to raise some money for this. So in 2013, we started to raise money and we raised enough from an individual donor to subsidize, to pay for my salary for a year. And I became the activist in residence at Smith College for the year of 2014. And that was a fantastic experience. Our mission was to design the Steinem Initiative, to design a pilot program that would experiment with ways to use this very rich history uh, in women's and gender history, this very rich women's and gender history, to bring it into current movement building and, and make it a, an active live tool in the current building of movements by women and by all progressive people um, in the United States and around the world. So we raised enough money to run this initiative for two and a half years. We brought activists to campus. Um, we brought we we started what was called the Gloria and Wilma School for Organizers. Gloria insisted that it be that this initiative be for Wilma, and we brought fifty women from organizations across the U.S. to the campus for five days, and we really immersed them at the archive. Now, most of these women, like most of us, like me, before I understood what the archive was, they had no idea that there was so much history collected in one place, that it was accessible, that it was in all different forms. It was written, it was oral, it was buttons, it was posters. It was amazing kinds of things. And it's very moving when you walk into the uh, archive and you see all of this history and all of this preservation and all of this um, aliveness that you think it won't be that alive, but it, in fact, it's, it's as if this history is really living in front of you. So we brought them, we immersed them in the archives, and then we asked them, what do you think you could do with this kind of history in your work? Would it impact the way you work with leaders, the way you train leaders? Would it impact your programmatic offerings? Would it impact what your website looked like? Like, what are all the different ways that you can think of using history in your current work and that that would actually make a difference? You know, we don't want to make work for anyone. We want you to tell us what would actually make a difference. So that began a dialogue with activists, many, I would say, you know, a couple of hundred activists over these years who were directly involved in the Steinem Initiative, giving input and feedback. And so we started a couple of projects under the initiative in in two particular fields of work. One is reproductive justice, and the second is uh, domestic worker organizing. And in that area of domestic worker organizing, there were two professors, there are two professors at Smith, Jennifer Guglielmo and Michelle Hoffroy, who took a particular interest in this and began to use their classes as places for their students to begin to build a timeline of domestic worker organizing in the U.S. over 200 years. That timeline, over over now four or five years of work on this, that project has grown and the timeline is incredible. It is disaggregated by racial and ethnic groups so that you can 
learn so much about the history of domestic worker organizing among Latinas, among Native American women, among Asian American women. And uh, you can go through huge periods of time. And what the timeline does is it brings forward previously unknown stories of agency, of organizing, of women who realized that they needed to do something in order to make their lives and the lives of their community better. So it's very powerful. This domestic worker organizing uh, project is in partnership with NDWA, which is the National Domestic Worker Alliance in the United States. NDWA is itself an organization that has grown tremendously over the last decade and is quite powerful and is connected to domestic workers all over the U.S. And and so this Smith project is now that came out of the Steinem Initiative is now a partnership with NDWA in which the timeline has been completed. The, there is curriculum that has been developed in conjunction with NDWA that is being used with domestic worker organizations in many, many parts of the United States, both urban and rural, to train leaders to engage more people in the movement for domestic worker rights. And that this engagement of people, that was a prime tenet of our belief at the Steinem Initiative, is that if people can see themselves in history, if you can bring forward these previously unknown stories and people can see themselves in history, they will engage in movement because they will feel that they belong. And that was our push at the Steinem Initiative. Was that a great segue for you to get involved with the National Immigration Law Center? Yes, although my involvement with uh, NILC, National Immigration Law Center, came before that. I went on the board, I think, in 2011 or 2012 at NILC. And I did that because I had the privilege of being in a cohort through the Rockwood Leadership Institute, which is located in California, but is national. They, every year, do a cohort of um, leaders of progressive organizations across the U.S. And in 2007, 2008, I was a part of a 24-person cohort that Rockwood organized, which was, again, another turning, profound turning point in my life. And I met a woman, uh, Marilena Incopier, who is the executive director of NILC. We met and we kind of fell in love through this cohort experience. And when I left the Ms. Foundation in 2010, she came to me uh, a little bit later and said, "Would would you consider joining the board of NILC? And of course I did. So This really speaks to my, first of all, belief in, again, the power of organizing uh, people who are marginalized in our society and bringing, bringing their experience into the mainstream. And it speaks to my huge interest in organizations. So when I left the Ms. Foundation, you know, one of the saddest parts for me was that I love living inside of an organization. I lived inside the Ms. Foundation for 25 years. And it was always a It makes me emotional to think about it. It was always a a vehicle for incredible personal growth and a vehicle for my creativity, right? So when I had to depart from Ms. because I knew it was time to depart, then NILC became a, a lifeline for me in the beginning. I joined up with another organization in a different role, that of a board member. And in 2016, 
when Trump was elected. Uh, and we knew, everybody knew that immigrants were going to be right, the first target in his sights. Right, and, right, and, right. and they were. So I became the chair of the board of, of NILC at the end of 2016. And I'm still the chair. I'm going to serve as chair through the end of 2020. And that has been and is a tremendous gift and privilege in my life. Well, too. you certainly have your work cut out when it comes to... Oh, boy, do we ever. <laughs> it seems patently obvious that we need more Sarah Gould. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say, Sandy. Well, I'm not kind. I'm just honest. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And you know, luckily for all of us, there are a lot more Sarah Goulds. Women are on the front lines. Women are going to take leadership in in every arena, no matter what. And I just have seen that over and over again because I had the privilege to work at Ms. Uh, so I can tell you with every certainty that there are uh, so many more Sarah Goulds out there who don't look like me. They didn't have my life experience and they are incredible activist organizers and leaders. That's the perfect way to end on that kind of an upbeat, hopeful note. Sarah Gould, thanks for sharing your history with us. I I think to myself, does this woman ever not do anything? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sandy. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Sarah. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 